Good morning. Happy 4th of July to everyone this morning. We're so glad you're here today. I hope that you get to enjoy some time with your friends, with your family, that you get to watch some fireworks uh, today or tonight. Um, we got to do that last night. So happy Independence Day, USA, USA, Independence Day. So if you ever traveled around the world, you will realize how independent of a people uh, we actually are. Have you ever done that? Have you ever traveled somewhere and realized as you go around that some people elsewhere in the world aren't exactly the same way uh, as we are here? It's actually a bit of a shock to the system, particularly in the ways uh, that we are independent in the way that we speak, in the way that we talk to each other, the way that we greet each other. So I'm Pastor Milo. Good morning. I'm greeting you. Welcome. I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that you're watching online. I'm glad that you're a part of our church here this morning. I'm, I'm also glad that we've gotten back to our regular seating pattern now that we're getting used to things. So the front section of the church is empty this morning. I wouldn't call myself a world traveler by any stretch of the imagination. Back in 2014, I went to uh, China. Now, I'd been to other foreign countries before that. I'd been to Romania. I spent some time in Croatia. I've been to Canada. And so I'm a world traveler, I guess. Uh, but when we went there to China, I never felt my independent American spirit well up inside of me so much as when I was there in China. Now, interestingly enough, as I was there, when you went around, it was so overwhelming of a place. But as you move around, I flew into the city of Shanghai and then flew from there to a smaller city named Guangzhou, which is not small by any stretch of the imagination. But while we were there, and while I was there, you, you went around in the city that I know as Shanghai. That word, Shanghai, was not written anywhere. There was nothing written in English anywhere. What on earth is going on? I mean, this is America. But it wasn't America. It was China, and they don't care what language I speak. And so all there was were all these different signs and symbols that I didn't recognize. And so while I understood where I was at because I didn't read the language or even read the alphabet, it was very difficult to hail a cab, to find an address, to get to where I was going. All of that became very difficult. When Coca-Cola first went to China, they marketed Coca-Cola and they chose a couple of characters that looked like the Coca-Cola logo. Uh, it was literally translated, however, it was translated uh, in Chinese to this. It said, bite the wax tadpole. They weren't selling very much Coke. I don't know why, but they weren't selling very much because who wants to buy it? So they made a change. They changed their strategy, a set of characters that means now. This is what it means now. Happiness is in the mouth. Coca-Cola. That makes a little bit more sense. Uh, Pepsi was also in China. They took a slogan from America, which is what they were using at the time. The, the slogan was, Pepsi brings you back to life. That was the slogan at that point. They put it very literally in Chinese, and this is what it was translated. Pepsi brings your ancestors back from the grave. <laughs> they may have sold more. I'm not sure whether they sold more because of that. Uh, when Gerber Baby Food first started to market its baby food in Africa, it didn't change anything or take into any consideration uh, the cultures there in Africa. They just put out the little bottles with a picture of the baby on the side of the bottle that we all know and understand. They weren't aware that in Africa, because uh, not many people read there or write there, that they actually generally, when they put packaging together, they put on the outside of the package what is contained inside of the package. And so, super cute little Gerber baby on the side of the bottle. 
I'd argue that it's difficult to understand some of the things as we're coming here to the book of Revelation, what John saw, regardless of your language. How would you describe some of the things that he is seeing? There's a, there's a passage in chapter 8, we're going to get there in a couple of weeks, uh, that some scholars say is, is the nuclear holocaust, and that's what's being described there. And John is trying to describe that. Try to imagine describing that to a first century Christian. It would be very difficult for them to understand what he is describing. This is what it says, I saw a great star like a blazing torch fall from the sky. So that's certainly possible that that might be what he's talking about. I don't think that John is laying in an open field watching shooting stars. Uh, there's something certainly much more significant going for. And so it's not straightforward. It's not easy. And it's not easy to comprehend, which is uh, a lie that we can actually fall into, a trap that we can fall into. No matter uh, where you are reading, what you are reading online, what you are seeing on TV, and people will tell you, I've got it all figured out. They just don't have it right. Because John is not reading or writing in English. John is not living in the 716 area code. John is not living here in western New York. And we still have to figure out what is it that he was talking about 2,000 years later. So if you've got your Bibles this morning, and I hope you do, you open up your Bibles today uh, and turn to Revelation chapter 7. If you're watching from home, we're so glad to have you here with us. The same thing, Revelation chapter 7. We're in the New International Version. If you're looking at uh, a, a digital version there, you find your way to a New International Version. Here uh, we have some Bibles in the pews for you as well. As we've been in this sermon series, you'll see there are a lot of symbols in this book. Many, many. I want to remind you that it's a, a book that's apocalyptic in nature. And so that means it's a different style of literature. We described that a few weeks ago to be able to talk our way through. It's a style of literature that's full of these symbols and signs. And we have to read the book and look at the text through that lens. Because if we don't look at it in that lens, we can be uh, confused. And it can get very confusing. We're not actually reading it for all it's worth. Because God actually gives it to John in this form. And so that's the context that we should actually do our very best to read it in, in that context. If you've been reading ahead at all, you've been in this, this book of Revelation with us, you've noticed there's a series of events that occupy this section. There are series of sevens. There are seven seals. We've been through six of them now. And then after that, there are seven trumpets that activate the seven seals. And then finally, there'll be seven bowls that come. The angels uh, will carry those seven bowls of wrath to be poured out. But in each of these groups of seven, there's actually a group of four followed by a group of three. Four events that are very public for all to see, and then three that are less easy to recognize that are happening kind of behind the scenes, the activity of almost these angelic agencies that are happening behind the scenes, both for good and for evil. And so last week and the week before, we saw how God judges the earth, breaking a series of seals that affect virtually everyone on the earth. We started with those four horsemen of the apocalypse and the awful things that that brings in. And then we've talked about the next two seals as well. And as we come to chapter 7, there's sort of this parenthesis. The action has been building. Judgment has been building upon judgment. And all of a sudden, chapter 7, there's sort of this break in the action. It's like there's been wave after wave of judgment that has come in, and now in the horizon we see the largest wave of all, and it's beginning to crest, and then it freezes in place. And as it freezes in place, as you're there watching the movie unfold in front of you, someone comes out and, and you realize that the film projector has stopped up in the film room, and someone has to fix it. And some of you are in the room going, whew, that was a lot. And you're glad to have, and some of you are going, oh man, 
I was ready to see the wave come crashing in. Well, for those of you who are waiting for the wave to come, we'll get there. That's chapter 8, and everything will get destroyed in its wake. We'll get there, for those of you who just love that. But for the rest of us, I think there is a bit of a relief that comes as we look at today's passage. Now, you're going to look here at chapter 6, and you're going to see really the, the main point of what's happening in chapter 7. Verse 17, you read this last week. For the great day of his wrath has come, but who is able to stand? So you've seen what's come so far. You've seen the judgments. You've seen them fall on the earth. And you ask the question, who could take that? Who could stand? Who'd be able to stand during this horrible time? And then chapter 7 actually describes for us who it is that would be able to stand. There will be two groups, chapter 7 tells us, that would be able to stand. One group, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. And then a second group, a great multitude that no one could number. Now, next week we're going to take on the second group that no one could number. This morning we're going to just deal with the first group, the 144,000. When we get to the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk, he saw that, that judgment was coming on the people during his time. And he asked God this question. He says, God, why would you let this happen to us? And then God answers his question, and as he lets it sink in, he basically goes back and said, okay, now, now I get it. Now I understand what you're going to do. But please, God, in your judgment, would you remember to cook into your judgment some mercy? Would you lace some mercy into what we're going to do? And if you think about it, you'll see that's actually what God does through all of Scripture. Every time that there is judgment, there's a pattern that happens in Scripture where he laces his judgment with mercy, and we see him extend mercy to these two groups here in Revelation chapter 7. So let's read the whole passage that we're going to cover today, beginning in verse 1. Revelation 7, beginning in verse 1. After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed, and then it goes on. And 12,000 is given in Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. So this first group is a numbered group. They are sealed, and they are the Jews, it tells us here, from all the different tribes of Israel. There are 144,000 of them. If you don't know this already, what you need to know is the passage that I'm attempting to dive into today is a lightning rod for controversy. This passage is a bear. <laughs> and when I say a lightning rod, you know what I'm talking about. But if you drive through the Midwest, you drive out into the country where there's places where there's a lot of open land and not a lot of tree coverage, you'll see, if you're looking for them, lightning rods on the top of buildings. The point of that lightning rod is if it's on top of a barn in the middle of the field, that lightning rod is there with a cable that runs down the side of the barn into a stake that's driven deep down into the ground so that when lightning strikes, it is actually attracted to the lightning rod and drawn into the ground so that it doesn't damage anything else or damage any property. That rod is highly conductive. It's asking for the lightning to strike it. The 144,000 here that is given in, the, in Revelation 7 is a lightning rod for controversy. 
It's very interesting this week as I was diving through, going through this passage. Again, you dive headlong into it and you'll see many, many groups who would say they're patting themselves on the back, running around identifying themselves as we are the 144,000. But if you were to ask them, you say, well, who are the 144,000? How are you sure of that? They would say, well, we are. You say, okay, uh, really? You're sure of that? You're sure that your group is the 144,000? And we'll get to that in just a minute. We'll come back to that in just a second. Let's get through the rest of the passage first before we grab a hold of that lightning rod this morning. So let's look at chapter 7 in relation to the rest of the book of Revelation. So how does chapter 7 fit in chronologically into everything else that we are seeing? The beginning of the chapter begins, verse 1 says, after this, which might seem to imply that the events are happening after chapter 6, right? After this, this is what happens next. It happens chronologically after chapter 6. But verse 3, we read the words, don't harm the land or don't harm the trees, and it would actually be pretty clear that now the earth has not been damaged. But we went through chapter 6, and there was complete destruction all over the earth. The earth is breaking apart. The, there's judgment everywhere. The sun is turning black. The moon is turning to blood red. And chapter 7 is beginning by saying in verse 1 that there are these four winds that are being held back, or the four corners of the earth. So I think this is giving us a clue as, as to how we should actually be looking at chapter 7 in the rest of Revelation. Chronologically, John is giving us the story, not chronologically as it happened, but actually chronologically as he saw the vision. He's saying this is what happened, then this is what happened, in the order of events as he sees them. But what we're really seeing here in chapter 7 is a different perspective. And looking at the same events from a different point of view. The, the wave of destruction is about to come crashing in, and just before it comes in, there's this freeze frame, there's this stop, there's this pause, and we get this meanwhile type of conversation. Chapter 7 is a meanwhile. This is what's going on. He's providing for us a picture in order so that we can see the reality that exists simultaneously with what happens when those four horsemen of the apocalypse come galloping onto the scene and the rest of the first six seals. So it's repeated in slightly a different way and to bring out some important truths that were not mentioned in chapter 6. Because nothing has been said in chapter 6. It's been very difficult to kind of grasp well, what is going on. Where are the people who have their security in God? Where are those people? How do we find them? Will they survive the war? Will they survive the ravages of destruction? How will they persevere through all of this? So we have to ask ourselves this question. Who can stand the winds of destruction? Who can stand the winds of destruction? Chapter 7 tells us the same story as chapter 6. It's using a different image, though. Instead of horsemen, it's using the image of the wind. And in this way, for the first century readers, if they are reading this, they are familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. They're going to pick up on the fact that this is a shadow, something that is going to remind them that they've seen this before. In Jeremiah 49, there are four winds that are coming from the four corners of heaven. In Zechariah chapter 6, there are four chariots who are horsemen who are said to represent the four winds. And so let's read this again with that in our minds to understand what the first century Jews were seeing when they read this. Revelation 7 verse 1. After I saw this, four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Remember how I said some things can get lost 
in translation. These passages, this verse that I just read and some of the verses from the Old Testament, these are the primary passages that were used for generations to defend the position that the earth is flat. The earth is flat. That these are the four corners of the earth. That the wind is coming from the four corners of the earth. That the earth must be flat. Again, lost in translation somewhere there, that these are the four corners. So if you're looking to defend that position, this is your text. The phrase four corners, though, that it's talking about here, the four corners of the earth, is the ancient equivalent to the idea of the four points on a compass, north, south, east, and west. The idea that the angels, they are affecting, the winds that they are affecting affect the entire earth. So who can stand the winds of destruction? These angels are there. They are given the power to restrain, to hold back the winds of destruction. No, no wind is to blow on the land or on the sea or on any tree. These are all instruments of evil that are talked about in chapter 6 that are about to be attributed. But now in chapter 7, these angels are holding back the tide. They're holding back the wind. It reminds us that God is the ultimate sovereign power over all the events that happen north, south, east, west, from every corner of the earth. Because in the end, even Satan will do exactly what God has told him to do. So the question still remains, the question at the end of 6, of who can stand? And the beginning of chapter 7 opens by saying this, four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. This is a pause. This is a relief. This is a parenthesis that tells us that, that God is giving us, and it is a relief to us, that God is in control. And that these angels of heaven are unaffected by all of the events that are happening here on earth. They are safe. They are secure. They are standing firm. Evil in all the different ways that it can show itself here on the earth does not unsettle them from their position. They are standing in place. God has put them there. God has put them in place for a reason. And so throughout all the turmoil, they continue to serve and continue to worship. Don't forget the opening scene that we came into, the throne room of heaven, where all are bowing down, all are worshiping, all are praising to the glory of God. The kingdom of heaven is a safe place, and worship continues around the clock and around the throne, unhindered, even if the foundations of the earth are shaking below. So who can stand the winds of destruction? Who can seal the servants of God? So who can stand the winds of destruction? Then who is it that's going to seal the servants of God? Continue on in verse 2. Just read this a moment ago. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given the power to harm the land and the sea. He says, do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. So who can seal the servants of God? So as John is seeing this vision, he's having this dream, he, as he watches, as the movie is playing out in front of him, a fifth angel appears on the earth. The angel rises from the east. That's not the east. The angel rises from the east. And some people think, because it's, it's rising like the sun, that this angel is reflective, that it's Jesus Christ, the angel that is coming from the east as the sun comes up. 
But the word another is in here. I saw another angel. And as we translate that from the Greek word alos, it tells us this angel has a different identity. It's a different person. It's just that. It's an angel. We're not certain who he is, but we do know that he has awesome power. Because what does he have in his hand? He comes commanding the four, uh, the four angels, the four corners of the earth, the four winds that are being held back. He's able to hold them back from their mission of destruction upon the earth. And he does so carrying this official stamp, this official seal from the divine command center of heaven, the throne room of heaven, the stamp, the seal from the throne of the living God. And so we see this seal. We see him sealing the servants of God. Now, everyone is very interested in 666, the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast that's going to be put as a mark on their foreheads. But everyone seems to miss, or we don't really think about, that there's this mark, this significant mark that is here. You see, the mark of the beast, the mark of the beast is simply a mimic of the mark that we see here. You see, Satan never has an original thought. When Moses walks into Egypt and he throws down his staff and it becomes a snake, what do the sorcerers do? They throw down their staff and they become snakes as well. But it's not an original thought, it's a copy of what has already been happening. And so Satan sees something that God does, and he says, well, I can copy that, I can counterfeit that, I can mimic that. So if there's Christ, then he mimics it, and he says, well, here's the Antichrist. If there's a true prophet, he'll mimic that, and he says, well, here's a false prophet. And if there's a true mark of God on their foreheads, he produces a false one and puts that mark to lead the world astray. Now, a seal is an imprint made by wax. We kind of get that, the idea of having uh, the kings having a signet ring. If you own something, you put a blob of wax on it, and then you put your ring in it, and that puts the seal, your signet ring on it. That's your seal, that it gives you, that you own it, and it's protected by you and whatever authority that you have. So here, we see that people are sealed. They belong to God, and that seal protects them during this time. And in Scripture, there are several seals that are given by God, so to speak, around groups of people protecting them from a time of judgment. In the days of the flood, we, we find that Noah and his family, they bring all the animals in two by two. But then what happens? God closes the door, and it says that he does what? He seals the door shut. When God judges Jericho and the walls were destroyed, this was the theme of our VBS this week. As he, as he does that, Rahab the harlot puts out this thread out the window, this scarlet thread from her window, and her family has been sealed. They have been protected from the walls that came tumbling down. Her portion of the wall remains intact. She was preserved because she lives out a life of faith in God and her family as well. When God judges Sodom and Gomorrah, first he takes out Lot, and his family out of the city. Later on when Exodus, uh, when it comes in, the Jewish families, they were to put uh, the blood on the door frames so that when the angel of death comes through, what, that that would seal them, that would protect them so that the angel of death knows and he would spare judgment on them and on their house. So while we're here on this subject, while we're in this moment of pause of chapter 7, if you're here today, and you call yourself a disciple, you call yourself a follower of Christ, then you too have been marked by God. You have been sealed in him. This is a bit of an aside, but I want to take us to Ephesians 
chapter 1, just so that we have this framework in our minds as we're looking through the rest of this passage. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 13, says this, And you were included in Christ when you heard the message, the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. You have been sealed. So now for the lightning rod. (laughs) Who are then the 144,000? Who will receive this seal of protection that we're reading about in chapter 7, beginning in verse 4? Then I heard the number of those who were being sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. And then just as a summary, and 12,000 is given in Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. So like I said, as I was preparing this week, there are many groups running around who love to identify themselves as the 144,000. So Jehovah Witnesses used to say that they were the 144,000, the only people that were chosen by God. And it was cumulative from the beginning, from from first century Jesus all the way until present, that there was 144 slots that were to be taken into heaven. But then after their numbers changed and they began to get past that, that grew beyond that 144,000 number, then they changed their position. They said, well, there's going to be 144,000 that will be anointed and be with Christ in glory forever. And then there'll be another 144,000 who they call the little flock who will be able to be priestly servants for the other 144,000, the true 144,000. And so this is why Jehovah Witness would be so adamant about going door to door to try to proselytize the religion that they believe in because they are trying to make sure that they are in the anointed 144,000. But the trouble with this is that the minute that they convert someone to, to become a Jehovah's Witness, now they are in direct competition with one another for the seats on the bus. The Seventh-day Adventists say, no, we... We are the 144,000. We are the faithful ones who will be taken to glory. Those of us who have kept the Jewish Sabbath and have been committed to that and taken up the customs of the Jews until the return of the Lord. Whenever whenever someone says, I am or we are a member of the 144,000, ask them this question. Which tribe are you? Which tribe are you from? Because if you're one of the members of the 144,000, since there are 12 tribes outlined here, 12,000 from each tribe, which tribe are you? Because if you're so certain that you're of the 144,000, which tribe are you? Because you see the Jehovah's Witness, the Seventh-day Adventists, these, these are not Jewish people. That makes another interesting point. So if these are the Jews, Jews don't believe in Jesus. So how are they going to be the 144,000? The Jews are the ones who put Jesus on the cross. Your sin, my sin, put Jesus on the cross as well. But how is this going to work? How is this supposed to work? Who will receive the seal of protection? So let's pause here for a second. 
and remind you again that this is a lightning rod of a passage. There are really, really godly people, great folks who will see this passage from different points of view, different points of scripture and see a little bit differently than others. There are godly people who do not see things exactly the same way as I'm sharing them with you this morning. And when you're dealing with an apocalyptic book that has to deal with signs and with symbols, this is often going to be the case. And it's not the easiest thing to interpretively just, just walk through. And so I've got a great deal of respect for the people who are going through it and they don't see it the same way that I do because I might not be seeing this correctly. But I do have some questions, and they would probably have some questions for me as well. Because it's given that we're talking about a book that's an apocalyptic book, and we're talking about things that are symbolic and things that are all about signs, it seems to me that we should start thinking about it as a symbol and as a sign, rather than thinking of it as a narrative and then getting to a symbol or a sign later. Because normally that's what we do. We will look at a piece of scripture and we'll look at it with kind of a plain sense until you have to deal with a symbol or a sign and then you say, oh, well, this must be a symbol or sign because I don't understand it. But what if we came at it from the point of seeing it as a symbol or a sign first when you're reading apocalyptic literature, then you're dealing with it in an appropriate way, as particularly here with Revelation. So we've got this picture of the 144,000, and so we have to ask ourselves, well, what is that? And there's a lot of systems of belief that would say, well, these are the Jews. These are the Jews that have been sealed, you know, because this is who they are. Look, they're, they're, their names are listed right here. Here's the 12 tribes listed after that. They, they have to be the Jews. And I can appreciate that, but what if that's not the case? And I would argue that maybe it's not the case because this is an extraordinarily round number, 144,000. So that's 12,000 times 12. Does that sound familiar? The number 12, as we look through scripture, does the number 12. 12 in the Bible is associated with Israel. There are 12 tribes of Israel. There are 12 loaves of bread on the table and the showbread in the tabernacle. There are 12 gates into the city of Jerusalem. There are 12 stones on the breastplate of the priests. And Jesus picks 12 disciples. 12 is a symbolic meaning through, and it's beating through all the course of scripture and even through the book of Revelation. It has to mean something. And when you look at these tribes, there are 12,000 in each of the tribes, perfectly, a round number of 12,000 in each of those tribes. Why isn't it 11,127 in a tribe? Why isn't it 4,364 in a tribe? Everywhere else we see the tribes listed, we get that type of specificity, I think is the right word. They're all 12,000. They're all round numbers. What is that supposed to indicate to us? Before you answer that question, stop, freeze. Let's remember what the book of Revelation is all about. We learn in chapter 1 that Revelation is all about the revealing, the pulling back the veil, the pulling back the curtain of Jesus of Nazareth. So who is the main character that we're supposed to be looking for? As the wave is coming in, who is it that we're supposed to see when we look at these passages? Who's being revealed here? Because when you look at this list, when you look at these tribes, you realize that they're out of order. Normally when you see the 12 tribes of Israel listed, you would see them listed by age first, the oldest of the tribe members first, Reuben. But that's not the case here. 
in, he, in this case, we see that the lineage starts with Judah. Why would Judah be first? Because Judah is the lineage of the lion who is also the lamb, Jesus Christ. So this list isn't about who's on the list. It's, the list is about who it's pointing to. Why? Because this list is a quote-unquote perfect list. The tribes of Dan, the tribes of Ephraim, they're not on the list. Even though every other time that we see the 12, uh, the, the, the 12 tribes listed, they're always there. They're not there in this case because they fell into idolatry, as what most scholars believe. They fall into idolatry during the years of the kingdom, and so they're not on this list. They've been replaced They've been replaced by Levi and Joseph, two tribes or, or two representatives of those who did not fall away from God. So stop, freeze for a second, and just think about it. Who's the main character? It's not about the 144,000, actually. I believe that the rest of this chapter is going to explain to us why it's not about the 144,000 in greater detail. But that's next week. We're going to get there. But it's not about 144,000, it's about Jesus. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus is the lamb who was slain for the sins of the world. Who is the main character of the Bible? As we talk about the narrative from Genesis to Revelation, from creation until the end of time, who is the main character that we're supposed to be keeping our eyes forward for? Is it Jesus Christ or is it us? See, there are two different mindsets that we can have with this presupposition when we look at Scripture. When we look there, we can see this, and I think this is the root of the problem that happens when you see this list of 144,000. And it's the reason why it is the lightning rod for controversy that it is. So as the band comes forward this morning, it's illustrated in a very simple way. It be illustrated as dog theology or cat theology. And I've shared this with you here before, but let me explain it once again. A dog theology says this. This is what a dog will say. You pet me, you feed me, you love me, you shelter me. You must be God. And a cat's theology says this. He says, you pet me, you feed me, you love me, you shelter me. I must be God. I want to serve God. I want to bless God. What is it that God needs from me? God serves me. God wants to bless me. What do I need from God today? See, dogs fit themselves into God's master plan. Cats think that their, that their needs are central to God's master plan. And the reality is, is most of what cat thinks about is not incorrect. The theology is not incorrect, but it is incomplete because it emphasizes self. And so when we look at Scripture as a whole, from Genesis to Revelation, we need to ask ourselves this question. What does this passage say about me? What does this passage say about how I'm supposed to behave? What does this passage say? Am I on the list? Or do we ask the question, what does this passage say about Jesus? What does this list say about Jesus? Who is the name above every name? It's Jesus. Who is the name above every name? It is Jesus. 
the verse that we spoke over and over and over and sang in song this week to our kids during VBS is this verse, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to Father except through me. Many of you are very excited and very proud and very happy that that's the message that we pounded in this week to your children. But are you listening to the message? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Are we looking at things with a me-focused mindset? All of Revelation, we've been told, is all about Jesus. And all the time that we go through it, we fight this battle where we say, well, that's about Jesus, but what about me? Where am I in this? It's not about you. It's not about me. Who is the name above every name? It is Jesus. And so this morning, I'm going to ask you to do something a little bit differently. In front of you, many of you have it there because you grabbed it from the back. We have a communion cup this morning. And so I'm not going to lead you through communion today. Instead, I'm going to ask you to go through it, to have a self-led time of communion between you and God. The band is going to play a song that's going to remind us of this phrase, who is the name above every name. And as you lead yourself through that time, if you know Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, I, I want you to be able to walk through that time this morning. If you don't, there's a Bible in front of you. If you're at home, find it in a digital device, John 14, 6. <coughs> if that Bible is in front of you, it's on page 1,129. To read that verse again and again, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Jesus gave his life, as we read earlier in Ephesians chapter 1 to seal you, to seal me, to seal anyone who call on the name of the Lord to be saved. To seal them through the Holy Spirit. His body was broken. His blood was shed there on the cross as a perfect sacrifice. This list is a perfect list, and I believe it points to Christ. You have been sealed by Christ. And Jesus says, this do in remembrance of me.